friends, Greg Kokel here, and Amy's having a good laugh because I was wandering around, limping around, actually, the office, and Amy said, hey, <laughs> you're up. Music's rolling, and i got to find my way in here. The reason I'm limping is because um, ever since, uh, I, I guess it was about Halloween, roughly the end of October. Okay, I know what it was. We went off of daylight savings time. And that threw my whole system off. I'm kind of joking, but this was the time it was like that. And then my hips just got weird. And I'm having a hard time walking, and there's referred pain to other parts of my leg, and my my hip joint on my right side is giving me a hard time. And so I went to the doctor, and they took a look and took a picture of both hips, and they said they both look bad. You need new ones. Both of them? Yeah. In fact, your left hip looks worse, but it's your right hip that's hurting. So uh, better fix that one first. Well, that's always hard, right? When you've got a traveling schedule and this and that turns out January's pretty clear for me. No events. So I was able to get on the fast track and Am I, should I be talking about this? Well, you guys can pray about it if you want to. I got the fast track, and so they're going <laughs> to they're going to cut my leg off and then sew it back on again. January four. I mean, that's the way it seems to me. That's just a hip replacement, but they got to sever the bone, right? Yeah, they got to do that. I'm looking at Amy; she's looking at me like, "What are you asking me for?" I don't know what they do. Most of the people in my family have had joint replacements. My wife had a knee replacement earlier this year. My sister's had three hips replaced. Yeah, she's shaped odd, right? And uh, no, I think she's had one hip replaced twice. I don't, I don't know how that works. She's my older sister. She had a knee replacement a couple of days ago, actually. Actually told me, she said, the only joint I have below my waist that I haven't had replaced is my one ankle now. So I guess it just runs in the family. It's kind of arthritis. And uh, my body, more than anyone in the family has been, well, how can I put this? I was going to say, I've beaten up. Well, I haven't beaten up other people's bodies in the family, but I have beaten my body up more than other people in our family have beaten their body up, okay? Uh, just with athletics and tennis and pole vaulting and rock climbing and all kinds of crazy stuff that I've done. Portaging canoes and running with the canoe on my shoulder. And, you know, that's why I'm two inches shorter than when I was in high school. All those discs flatten out, but that's not my back now. It's my hip. So it just everything goes south, right? And uh, there'll probably be more of this. My brother's getting his shoulder uh, <laughs> fixed in a couple of weeks. And my, and then right around the time I'm going in, my other brother's getting his back operated on. We're all falling apart in the Cocoa family. But, you know, we've had a good run. Hopefully I'll get put enough back together where I'll be able to live normally until the next one needs to be fixed. But anyway, how did I get off on this? I know that because I was limping around in the office trying to get into the studio while the <laughs> while the music was on. Anyway, if you're, I, I would, I don't usually make a fuss about my private life and here's the prayers that I need. But now you know, and uh, we are going to be maintaining our broadcasts. We're doing STR asks in advance. We did four this morning. Amy and I, and through the rest of the uh, month, we're going to be doing four a week, 
and that'll help me get ahead for the month of January. We might have a couple fill-ins, maybe. Tim, Mr. B. Barnett will be on board. We'll see. This is Amy's problem. It's not mine. She says, thanks a lot. Uh, but uh, So we will not leave you as orphans while I am recuperating, and hopefully uh, the month that I have um, convalescing and writing, actually, because I can write even though I'm and I do have a deadline in February uh, with the project. So um, I still will be working. I won't be totally out of it. But uh, I would appreciate it if you would pray for a successful uh, Operation January 4. Okay, there you have it. All right, let's do uh, an open mic call. And there's two calls here, like back-to-back, Nathan and David, that we have. Both of them have to do with young Earth creationism and old Earth creationism and the issues. So um, let's take um, let's take Nathan first, and uh, then we'll take David, although they're kind of connected. Nathan. Hey, Greg, this is Nathan. I wanted to say up front that I appreciate your ministry. I wanted to partially say that because there, this might come off as a bit critical moving forward. Um, but I was uh, wanting to talk to you about the recent conversations you've been having with a young man named Cade uh, regarding creation, evolution, and in your case, apparently old age, uh, old earth uh, creationism. I was wondering uh, why you hold to that view, because the defenses that you have given for it don't seem to me to be very compelling. Uh, on, first off, you say that perhaps we're reading the Bible wrong, and secondly, you appeal to the language of appearance in situations such as the sun rising and the sun setting. Regarding the uh, first uh, claim, the first idea that we might be reading the Bible wrong, I'm a little bit skeptical because in books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, I would readily recognize that there's going to be a lot of metaphor because in Hebrew literature, they are an example of uh, poetry. And so we know they're going to be using a lot of metaphor and non-literal language. Uh, same token goes for things like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Revelations, where we see a lot of figures, strange beasts and creatures. Um, but even in the books themselves, sometimes they're explained as being symbols. We know that, uh, and we know that that makes sense because they are books of prophecy. Um, so that makes sense. But Genesis at least purports to be a book of history. And I'm just wondering why, in a book of history, God would begin by inspiring Moses to write a lengthy, falsified tale about the origin of the earth. It just does not seem to make sense. On the, on the second score, regarding the language of appearance, uh, just going back to the fact that there were no humans present to see God creating, uh, it seems strange to me that God, who would have been the only observer there, uh, would use some sort of language of appearance when there were no observers there to see it wrong in the first place. It seems to me that the clearest reading of Scripture is to read it literally, to read the six days of creation as being literal six days of creation, and to uh, build theology from there. I don't see any evidence uh, through science or anything else to suggest that the creation of the world as uh, as given in the book of Genesis uh, is incorrect or that we have to have an old earth. And so I'm wondering what is it if you, as you said in the most recent podcast, if there's no uh, authority in scientists, what is the evidence that you see that uh, convinces you that the earth has to be old that couldn't as easily be explained from a young earth view? Uh, thank you again for your ministry. I hope that this uh, question comes off the right way and uh, hope that your ministry continues to have good success. 
Well, thank you, Nathan. And the question came across fine. And uh, But there's a whole lot there. I'm scribbling notes as you were talking, and there's a lot uh, to respond to. Um, so let me do my best. It's not going to be a deep dive into the whole issue because there's a lot of complication here. Let's just say, let me, let me start with this. When I read Genesis 1 carefully, it does not clear to me just in a straight-up reading, that this implies or requires a, <clears throat> a, to use your language, a literal, and you mean there, 24-hour day uh, reading, okay? In fact, when I read it now, I actually see it quite differently. And there's a couple of things that I met, mentioned to Cade that are reasons for that. Uh, I mentioned about the the existence of the sun and the language morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, okay? Now, that language can be used metaphorically, and even though it is a—it a, can be taken as a chronologue, that is, a, a an historical account that's in chronological order, it still can be an historical account that is not in chronological order. We see that in the Gospels. Okay, so you can you you certainly have the possibility that even though we have some characterization that has historical truth in it, that there still can be it could be not in exactly the right order for one, and second be because the order is determined by the purpose of the author, and we find that in the Gospels, like I said, with some exception, Luke is more in order, Mark is not in order, for example, and even in historical accounts, we have figures of speech. We use figures all the time. Look at the sports page. Sports page is meant to give us details about actual events, but there's all kinds of figures of speech that are used there, okay? My point uh, about the, uh, the language of appearance is that even though we have a statement in Scripture that says the sun rises and sun sets, we know from astronomy— that that's not exactly what's going on. The earth is spinning, okay? And so we realize that in that case, our well-justified evidence from science, not the authority of science, but the evidence from science, the well-justified evidence gives us pause and makes us wonder, maybe we didn't read this accurately. And then we realize in that case that well, that's really the appearance of things. Now, I wasn't saying that Genesis 1 is doing the same thing, that is, it's the language of appearance. I'm just simply saying that sometimes we realize that we have misread our texts, all right? And we realize that when we have good reason to think the contrary. All right. I mentioned that when I read Genesis chapter one, I don't, I don't take the these. Uh, I don't take it in the same way, the twenty-four hour day, literal day, partly because the word day is literally used three different ways in that larger text, especially if you take into account chapter two and verse uh, four. I think it is, and that is, it can be used. It's used as a as as a a. a 24-hour day. It could be used as day 
time, the light day, or it could be used as a period or an era. It's used in all of those ways, apparently, in Genesis chapter 1. So there is flexibility even in the language. It isn't like we're just reading what it says. The problem that I pointed out of taking those days as solar days, 24-hour solar days, is they're characterized by the term morning and evening, morning and evening in each case. The problem is you can't have a morning and evening without a sun, because morning and evening just is that period of time when the sunrise rises and sun sets. So when I see that, and I also see that the word day is used in different fashions there, just based on the internal evidence, even though there, this is meant to give a history of sorts, I am not compelled by the language uh, to come to the conclusion that that God is talking about 24 solar days, okay? Um, the, 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 independent of that, so that's just dealing with the internal evidence of the text. And again, I'm moving quickly, so I'm just giving some things to think about, although most of the things I'm saying here are not uh, are basically the same things that I've said to Kate now I'm thinking about it. A lot of the same things, okay? Um, I understand that the poetic literature and Job and Revelation, all this trades heavily in metaphor, but that isn't the case. Uh, I'm sorry, but it isn't the case that the other books don't as well. In our common discussion, our common parlance, if you will, we also trade a metaphor, and uh, I just mentioned the sports page as an example of it. Um, the um, as far as the the scientific evidence is concerned, I actually there's there's a number of things that impress me. One of them is the the what appears to be very strong evidence for long periods of time in the geological record. Okay, there are different ways to calculate this, and I know some of these have been taken exception with uh, by others. But uh, but you also have Big Bang cosmology that uh, puts the uh, the date of the beginning of the universe something like um, I'm thinking now is it about seven something billion years ago, and uh, you have a number of other measurements. Like I said, I'm not doing a deep dive here, but you also have the problem with starlight now. I've heard some responses to this problem, and I have never been satisfied with any of the responses that I've had. Um, when it, God told Abraham to look to the sky, he said, look at the stars and see if you can count them, okay? Now, that's the appearance. There are stars there, okay? But the stars are a long way off, and it takes a long time for that light to reach us. And I actually wrote a piece called, I think it's called Starlight and Time. Oh, this is over 20 years ago. It was a solid ground piece. It's probably still on our website where I talked about this difficulty because the answer that I've been given by young earthers is that God creates the light in transit, okay? And so that's why we can see the light from stars that are so far away it would take, under normal circumstances, billions of years for the light to reach us. But God created that light in transit, and so that's why we can see them, because he's given us that ability, even though the earth is young. Now, to me, this is incredibly ad hoc, because light isn't just a glow. If you're in an airplane and you're flying and you see out the window at night, you see a glow in the horizon. But when you get closer, you realize that the glow isn't just a glow. It's an articulation of events that are revealed by the light. 
So the glow is a record of actual events, things that are happening, stars that are burning, for example. When you have a supernova, that's an explosion of a star. So the question is, was this explosion something that God created, or the visual of the supernova, which never actually took place because the universe isn't old enough for that to have have happened, did God create that visual of the supernova in transit? Uh, And if he did, for us to see something that never happened, now that creates another problem. Because we assess our universe with our eyes, with what we see. Even reading the New Testament, rather, the book of Genesis, we need the reliability of our eyes to behold the words on the page to be able to assess the information that's communicated there. But if the light is made in transit, and the light is a record of events that never took place, that means we can't trust our eyes regarding the starlight that God describes to Abraham, okay? I think when God described the starlight, it was really light coming from stars. It wasn't a light show that he made for viewers on the planet. Um, And I'm not entirely sure why, in a certain sense, this is so critical. Uh, I have a question coming up next that's related to this, and maybe I should save my comments for that. But um, let's take the flood, for example, uh, just as a parallel, because it's a, it's, it falls in a similar category. Was the flood global, or was it local? Or, as Peter puts it, worldwide, the world that then was, the inhabited world that was being judged, the people on the planet. Well, it seems to me either one could fit the biblical record. It just depends on what the ge- geological record is. I don't really have a you know, a horse in this race. It could be either one. The whole earth was covered with water, the globe, or the earth that was populated with human beings who were being judged was covered with water. What difference does it make, really, ultimately? What, what great issue of theology weighs upon the distinction? This is another thing I don't quite understand, certainly not with the flood. I do understand more with the age of the earth, because there's a whole question about death and the fall, but I think this is resolved by a more careful reading of, uh, of uh, Romans chapter 5 on this question. So, I guess broadly, and I'm just speaking very broadly, I have two categories. I look at the, the text of the, of the creation account, and I do take it as a description of things that happened to a degree, but I can't take it in a certain sense strictly at face value, because it's obvious to me that the words are being used like day, yom, in different ways in different verses, and that a strict 24-hour day characterization couldn't be what is in view there, for one, because of the use of the terms morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening, when there is no sun to give morning when it rises or to give evening when it sets. Something else must be going on there. That's all I'm saying. And the language of appearance illustration or point with the rising and the setting of the sun, the sun rises, the sun sets, is just to make the point that sometimes the language that we read in the Scripture may be informed, or hermeneutic may be informed by exterior information that is well justified. Now, 
I think, from what I've seen, and I mentioned uh, the uh, geological record, I mentioned um, the Big Bang cosmology, and I mentioned the issue of starlight as three different things that are compelling to me that indicate the universe is old, it's not young. And, and you know, how old am I? I'm taking the best scientific assessments that have been verified in a number of different fashions, cross-checked, etc. Now, I don't buy into Darwinian evolution because I don't think on the merits it succeeds, right? So I reject it on the merits. Um, but uh, I don't see any reason to reject an ancient earth on the scientific merits, nor on the biblical merits. I think for me the most difficult challenge is the genealogies there in the early chapters of Genesis. That's a challenge, and I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, but other than that, I, I don't see any reason to, um, to, in a sense, to rigidly adhere to a 24-hour creation when it doesn't appear to me that in the text itself that that's what was intended. So those are the reasons, and um, you know, if I mean Nathan, it, you you can weigh that yourself. I don't suspect I've heard anything that you haven't heard already, but um, th- those are that's my rationale. And everybody's got to make up their own mind about this. Now there is another uh, call that I want to take that's related to it. So let's just hear David's call and then pick that. Oh, wait a minute! I'm looking at the time here. Time for a break. When we come back, we'll take David's call, and maybe during the break I'll think about if I have anything else I want to add to what I've already said uh, to Nathan's question. And uh, I took a lot of notes, but I'm <laughs> uh, not sure if I got it all. Okay, and uh, then we'll take David's and, and, and more calls coming up on Stand to Reason. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today.
All right, friends, back at you here. Greg Kokel, looking at these notes again. I think uh, I covered as much as I wanted to with Nathan. I just realized there's another call from Nathan, a follow-up. Let's take take David first and respond to David, and then we'll come back to Nathan's call. Hello, Greg. Uh, thanks for choosing my call. My wife and I uh, ran into an interesting crossroad. <laughs> Last night, we were talking about the age of the earth, and I expressed to her that I lean towards uh, an old earth view um, of creation um, as opposed to the new earth, and it freaked her out a little bit. (laughs) So I was wondering if uh, you could recommend um, a book that really explains what old earth creation is creationists uh believe um and that that it's not you know a heretical thing or something like that um i know that there's a lot of stuff by hugh ross but um a lot of his books are really (laughs) very wordy and i get lost (laughs) so i wondered if there was a easy book (laughs) to read that might help me explain things to my wife um thank you very much for your ministry god bless Thank you, David. And um, gee, you made a tough request here. You want me to make a recommendation about something that addresses a somewhat complex scientific issue, but it's got to be easy to read. (laughs) Actually, I did have a book by Hugh Ross I was going to recommend, but let me recommend another one first to you. And this is John Lennox. John Lennox is a uh, mathematician from Oxford, a very well-known Christian apologist from the UK, and um, his book is titled Seven Days That Divide the World. Seven Days That Divide the World. Sound right, Amy? John Lennox's book? Yeah, I think. And I've read the book, and I thought it was really good. And he kind of lays it out a bit. And there's actually there's, there's, uh, there's something else that he deals with as I recall, that's really important, and it's something that I want to bring up here, and I hinted at a little bit with um, my response to Nathan. And apparently, David, your wife is concerned that maybe an old earth view is heretical. Well, uh, if it is, then Augustine was a heretic, you know, the fourth century church father, because he understood the universe to be old as well. The fact is, there is no council of churches, there is no creed that I know of, certainly no council, that has decided and weighed in on the issue of the age of the universe, uh, such that it would be a vital, uh, necessary sine qua non of Christianity, Uh, that, that element without which it would no longer be Christianity. This is actually a fairly modern discussion. Started, I think, in the maybe the late nineteenth or early twentieth century. Before that, it was not a concern of the church. So there is no heresy that is in uh, on the table here. There's no question of heresy. You can be a young Earth creationist. You can be an old Earth creationist. Now, both aren't right, obviously, but neither. Are, heter- uh, are heretical, and I think neither are even heterodox. They don't even kind of deviate from biblical norms. 
The unfortunate thing is that a lot of noise has been made about this issue in the last 50 years it's to, to make it sound like if you don't hold this view, then you are, you are out of step with orthodoxy. When I say this view, I mean the young earth creation view. But that's just not true. Now, it doesn't mean that my view, old earth, is true. Okay, I'm not talking about which one's true or which one's false. I'm just simply saying that neither view rises to the to the level of biblical orthodoxy, such that if you reject one or the other, you are reject, rejecting biblical orthodoxy, and that something that's required of those who would be of the faith, and therefore you're off the reservation. It just is not the case. Now, some have made the point that if you hold to an old earth, that means you believe that there was death before the fall, which is true. And if there's death before the fall, according to their reading of Romans chapter 5, um, well, there's a contradiction with Romans 5, which talks about death as a result of Adam's sin, and that is tied to the cross. And then there's kind of a long leap that if you deny I'm sorry, if you affirm death before the fall, somehow that undermines the cross of Christ. Now, this is just not true. You know, in the 80s, the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy, they had all kinds of scholars who were deeply committed to inerrancy, and uh, and they met, I think, in Chicago, and they delivered a statement after a lot of talking because inerrancy was under attack from all quarters. And as I understand it, of all those scholars, there was only one young earth creationist. Now, it could be the other scholars were wrong. It's possible. But the point I'm making is, these were all people there that were delivering the most um, thoroughgoing modern statement about the authority of the Bible, even though the vast majority of them did not hold to a young earth position. I think reasonable minds will conclude then that one's view about the age of the universe is not related to biblical orthodoxy in that sense, or even to biblical integrity. I think that's the fair conclusion to draw. Again, it may be that one was right and all the rest were wrong. I'm not weighing in there. I'm just talking to the question of what kind of views seem to be legitimate and legitimately held. So, uh, David, in your circumstance, I, I, you know, you can explain to your wife, she might be right and you might be mistaken. You might be right and she might be mistaken on the age of the universe. Uh, but neither view has any bearing on whether you guys are inside the faith or outside of the faith. And that is the measure of, uh, of orthodoxy or, on the other hand, of heresy. Okay. Um, no matter what some people have made of this issue, it is not a matter of biblical orthodoxy to hold to a particular view of the age of the universe, which is why it was almost never discussed in the church uh, for the last 2,000 years until the last 100 years or so. Okay, So <clears throat> uh, I would recommend John Lennox's book because he goes through a, a different ways of understanding the text. And um, uh, I also recommend Hugh Ross's book, A Matter of Days. I think that's the title. Is that the title, Amy? She's going to look it up. I'm just going by memory here. I have the book, and I really like it. But he's written so many books. But that one, I think, 
specifically addresses this question that you're concerned about. And uh, some of his stuff is really hard. I mean, I, I read Stephen Meyer's stuff, you know, too, you know, Signature in the Cell or Darwin's Dilemma or whatever that, you know, and uh, and I skip a bunch of pages because I just can't get into all the chemistry and all of that stuff. Uh, I try to go for the main strokes, and uh, that's the way I read them, and that's the way I read Hugh Ross, too, because I, I can't get into all of the the minutia of the physics and stuff like that. Um, but I think he does do a really good job of giving legitimate alternate explanations of these passages that comport with an old earth understanding uh, of Genesis. So um, again, I, I don't, I hinted at this a little earlier when I was responding to Nathan's initial question. And that is, I, I I know there's a lot of intensity about this issue, but I don't really see what's at stake on either side. Uh, I know that that uh, one young earth argument, uh, not unrelated to um, the, the, the merits scientifically or biblically, is that if we suggest in our views that people can't trust the first chapter, then how can they of the Bible, how can they trust the rest of the Bible? But of course, this is circular. That presumes that they understand and are getting accurate their reading of the first chapter. And that, I think, that way of reasoning backfires, because if people are convinced for what seem to be good reasons that the universe is not young but old, then they conclude they can't trust the first chapter if this is what the first chapter of the Bible demands, and therefore they can't trust the rest of it. And boy, I've seen that as well. So, I mean, that knife cuts both directions. Um, I think John Lennox does a great job in The Seven Days That Divide the World, and I think Hugh Ross also really acquits himself well in all of his works, but I think Matter of Days is that right, Amy? You're looking it up? Yeah, that's it. A matter of days uh, will help answer some of those questions for you, David. Uh, let's go back to Nathan again, because he did a follow-up. So let's hear what he has to say. And this is not a response to what I just said. <laughs> this was one that we've had for a while. Okay, Nathan. Hey, Greg. This is Nathan from Oklahoma. I'm just uh, trying to get in touch with you regarding something I'd said a question about earlier. Uh, while you haven't gotten back to me on that subject, you have talked about it on your podcast since. So I wanted to submit a new uh, question that addresses the, the reasoning you used, um, because the subject I'm interested in is your belief in old earth creationism. While I definitely believe in the creationism part, I don't believe the, young, the uh, old earth position is correct. I believe that the young earth position is correct. Um, but my main issue with the most recent podcast on the subject is that you made the argument uh, from a couple of premises. The first premise, I believe, is correct, which is that the Bible is true, not because we believe it's true, but we believe it's true because it is true. Um, and I believe that is the accurate premise. The second premise that you come up with, though, that I believe is incorrect, is that if you then have scientific evidence uh, to say that something happens a certain way that uh, appears to contradict the Bible, that you have to come to the conclusion that you are misreading the Bible. I think that's a very dangerous uh, line of thought, not just a wrong line of thought, because if we are to take that uh, standard, 
then I could also say that we have very strong scientific evidence to suggest that men do not rise from the dead. And I know very clearly, based off of your ministry elsewhere, that you don't believe that you need to reinterpret the Bible's account of Jesus' resurrection because of that very clearly established scientific fact. Uh, the fact of the matter is we believe in a God of miracles. I believe you do as well, based off of my understanding and having heard your podcast. Um, so I'm wondering what scientific evidence you believe is so strong that it requires you to rewrite the entirety of the first few chapters of Genesis um, in order to believe it. Because as far as I see, there is no conflict with the creation that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 and with the... Uh, with the scientific evidence that we see around us. So I'm wondering what exactly you're seeing, what exactly you believe is such a strong scientific principle that it overrides the clear teaching of Scripture. Um, again, this is, I'm, I'm hoping to be, that this question is coming across in the right attitude. I'm not trying to attack you. But at the very least, uh, I would like for you to refine the way that you argue for this point. Uh, because I think at the moment it's very weak and uh, leads you down some very wrong pathways. Thank you. God bless. Okay, let me try to respond. Again, there's a lot of detail there, but I, I think I got the broad strokes. Uh, the claim was made by Nathan uh, that there is a clear teaching of Scripture, and that my way of looking at it is rewriting the, the first chapter of the Bible. Okay, as I've explained it, though, First of all, I don't think it's the clear teaching, and I gave the reasons why. Now, Nathan can disagree, and any of you disagree, fine. But I don't think it's clear. And uh, I'm not going to go over those reasons again, because we already did that a little earlier this hour. Um, and so I am not, not rewriting. But I, I want you to think for a moment about the resurrection, because that was brought up as an example. Um, why is the resurrection so important to Christianity? And the reason it's so important to Christianity and the other miracles that were formed is they are evidences that the claims of Christianity are actually true. Okay, so there was reference made to a comment that I made. Do we believe the Bible because it's true, or is it true because we believe it? Now, it's not going to be true just because we believe it. We all understand that, okay? Because believing something can't make it true. We we believe it's we believe it because it is true. But the question then is, what does it mean for a thing to be true? The classic way of understanding the concept of truth is that the things that we think are so actually are so because they match the way the world really is. The only way we could know that is by looking at the way the world really is. In the first century, the way the world really was, was that there was a man who worked miracles that people could see as evidence for the claims that he made about himself, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I say to you, arise, take up your pallet, and go home. Okay? And so there you have a, a work of power done where people can see it. Okay? So we're just going to take the scientific part out of it. The, I mean, because I think that word, the scientific evidence, this becomes a cumbersome word that sometimes gives the wrong impression, starts to feel like the authority of science, which I have taken exception with. The point I'm making here is there are th ways that we can observe and test the world that give us good reason that the world is a certain way. And Jesus 
um, leverage that kind of thing with his own miracles, and the greatest of which were his own resurrection. At the end of the book of John, in John chapter 20, John says that I have— that many other signs Jesus performed that were not included in the book, but rather the ones that were included, seven miracles there in the Gospel of John, were included in order that we would believe. What does that mean, believe? We would hold to be true. What? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the result is, in believing, have life in his name. So, John is holding out evidence before us that can be observed about the world that in that that we then use to draw conclusions about Jesus and broad, more broadly about Christianity and the Christian message. That's all I'm saying with those the statement we believe the Bible because it's true. If we say it's true, that means it matches the world. That means there is a place for us to look at the world and the way the world is and the things that happen in the world, and that's where the resurrection comes in to affirm and other miracles to affirm the gospel message. Now, this is where Nathan sees a dangerous direction. But let me pause before I address this particular challenge, that science says dead men don't rise, okay? Um, the challenge, uh, the, the, what I want to uh, pause and do is to reinforce my earlier statement. We have no choice but to justify our beliefs if we are going to claim they are actually true to the way the world is. That's it. The only thing we're left with is fideism. We believe because we believe. The Bible's true because we believe it. It's not—we don't believe it because it's true. That's the only other alternative. Okay, well, that's not me, and that's certainly not Nathan, and that isn't hopefully most Christians. That certainly isn't the New Testament. So there is a place for us to be looking, in a certain sense, outside of the claims of the Bible to see if the claims are matching the way the world actually is, so that we could then say, yeah, it's true. Now, we don't do that with every single thing in the Bible, obviously, but there are touch points where we can test it to find out if the account in general is reliable, and then there are things that God tells us about Himself that there's no way to validate any other way, not by observation. The Trinity is one of them. We validate that by revelation. Okay, but we can verify the revelation in some measure and the truth of Christianity by these touch points. Call it scientific evidence if you want. Doesn't matter to me. The point is that there's external evidence that helps us. And sometimes, by the way, and I'm perfectly comfortable with this, the external evidence is a witness by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Okay, and uh, and that is a that is a uh, a proper properly basic means of justification. And um, <clears throat> Bill Craig has talked about this, and Alvin Plantinga has talked about this, whatever. So I'm not just ruling that out. But I'm just simply saying, if we don't have some way of verifying in some sense that's legitimate, then we're just believing and believing. And it's and that's the way a lot of religions are with their religious texts. Um now, the problem that Nathan brings up has been brought up before. Science tells us that dead men don't rise. And here I'm making a very, very important distinction, and, uh, and, and uh, that, that I'm just trying to think of the best way to put this. I, I, let me just leave it at that, uh, an important distinction. Strictly speaking, science doesn't tell us whether dead men can rise or not. Philosophy tells you that. 
Science can tell you whether a body's dead or whether a body's alive and what the normal patterns happen to be so we can predict things. It doesn't say whether those patterns can be violated or not, or maybe violated isn't the right word, whether those patterns are inviolable, but I guess that's violate too, another form of the word. It doesn't doesn't tell us whether th- that matter in motion, according to natural laws, is all there is. That's philosophy. And of course, we talked about this a lot, that, that what has happened in the scientific endeavor is they've gone from an empirical method that tells us the way things happen to a, an imposed philosophy that tells us what's possible to happen and what's not possible to happen. But that's philosophy. That's not science. We know things by lots of different means. And one of them is by observing the world, and we can observe patterns that way. But it's only philosophy that tells us that certain patterns are inviolable. So I'm not in any, any thin ice at all uh, in saying that science, if you want to use that word, I'm not comfortable with it because it conjures up a bunch of stuff for people, science or observational uh, knowledge empirical knowledge about the world can have a place in assessing our own convictions. If we, if, if we, if we, if we say we're not going to go there at all, we're not going to go there at all because of the danger that Nathan thinks that places us in, then what is my question? Then what do we do? What point of verification are we allowed? And it seems to me that there's no point of verification that we're allowed because you could also always say that with regards to some kind of verification we use, we could be mistaken by that. Well, that's true. We could be mistaken about all sorts of things. But the fact is, we are, we are knowledge seekers by nature. God made us that way, and he's given us faculties that allow us to gather true information about the world. And he's given us actually two books of revelation. This is pretty standard theology. The book of Scripture and the book of nature. And both of the books coincide. They have to because they're both God's revelation, all right? And uh, what our job is to do is to try to find solution to scriptural problems that talk about things that relate to the natural world and see where we get a fit. And we've just got to do the best job that we can. And for my money, I've landed on the old earth position for the reasons I've mentioned, not just the so-called scientific reasons, um, but also for the textual reasons that I talked about as well. Uh, Let's see. We just got about 10 more minutes in the show, so I won't take another break. Maybe I've already taken all my breaks. I don't know. But uh, let's look at another question here. Open my calls. And by the way, I thank Nathan for both calls, and I thank David for his call as well, and I hope I've offered something to think about. Um, I'm looking at the list here. Okay, here's one from Amber. Let's have Amber. Can we have Amber there handy? Hi, Greg. My name is Amber from Kentucky. I have a question about something that happened at our church a few weeks back. Um, our church decided to put on a special service on Sunday morning for our first responders. Um, 
And, you know, we, we appreciate our first responders and that was all well and good. My husband and I thought what would happen uh, is that we would be thanking them at the beginning of the service, have regular church, and then maybe a dinner or something after. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is not what ended up happening. Our um, church instead decided to have the entire service dedicated to first responders um, on a Sunday morning. The uh, church even brought in local politicians um, to get up in the front and speak uh, during our Sunday morning service um, to thank our first responders and to say, Um, basically whatever they wanted to say. Um, Conveniently, this was a few weeks before the election, although I don't know that it was necessarily had anything to do with that. Um, And, you know, some of the things they said were just uh, cringeworthy um, as a Christian. Uh, For instance, one of them said, while standing in front of a cross, no one and nothing deserves our gratitude more than first responders, which, you know, We think about maybe Jesus uh, Hmm. does deserve our gratitude more than them. Um, But my husband and I just don't know what to do. We're thinking about writing a letter to the Mm -hmm. pastor and to the deacons and elders. Um, It just, it felt, it felt bad while we were Mm. sitting there in service. We felt like we needed to escape. And I would really appreciate your, your thoughts Mm. on this. Thank you. Well, Amber, thank you for the question. And I can kind of feel your cringing there and I'm cringing inside based on what you described took place. Um, in my mind, there are two different issues here. One is the uh, the use of a church service to honor first responders and use the whole service for that. And the second issue is what actually took place. Those are two separate issues. When I read the summary of the question, Amy uh, typed out for me, what do you think about my church devoting an entire church service to the first responders? Obviously not the detail, Amber, that you gave when you uh, described the whole event, but my f- initial reaction was, well, I guess I don't have a problem with that. There are times when sometimes as a community, we, as a church community, as a Christian community, we gather together and we do something special, okay, uh, for some virtuous purpose. And having a, uh, a, a church service dedicated to saying thank you to first responders, however, I mean, I'm just not talking about the details right now, I'm just talking in principle. Uh, if normally you have services that are normal. <laughs> you have preaching and singing and that kind of stuff. Once in a while, something unique or special is done. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind that church services, the way they're done, is culturally influenced. Okay, so we just have a sense. We meet on Sundays and we do these particular things. Well, the early church met on Sunday. Uh, but uh, but they also met other times as well, but they met mostly on Sunday, as far as I could tell, okay? But then there's this way that we do things. I've been in lots of churches in lots of places around the world, and people do things differently in different churches. I've been in Russian churches back when—well, actually, they were Ukrainian churches—back before the Iron Curtain came down, and, and half the group was—the uh, group was split with half—with the women on the right and the men on the left, and that when you stand for the service, you're standing for 
like a long time, 45 minutes. And sometimes the service goes for three hours and all kinds of different things. It's not like our services. So, so what we do on Sundays when we gather together varies from church to church at different times. Now, characteristically, it ought to look a certain way. There's an encouragement from the Word, there's teaching, there's instruction, there's taking the Lord's Supper, that kind of stuff. But I don't see any reason why there can't be, in a certain sense, exceptions to the scheduled. All right? So, in principle, I don't think there's anything wrong with entiring a, 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 devoting a service to first responders or devoting a service to veterans or devoting a, a service to mothers or I don't know. I mean, I'm not dictating how to do it. I'm just saying, in general, I think that as a community, we can get together and say thank you and celebrate in different ways a group of people who have done really good for the community. Now, having said that, the way this whole thing came off (laughs) in your circumstance, Amber, seemed really um, untoward. Let me put it that way. Uh, When you have local politicians coming in, um, giving a secularized kind of characterization of stuff, this doesn't sound right to me. I mean, they're coming in and they're standing in the pulpit or up in front of the church at a church service. So it's a gathering of Christians, but they're not representing Christianity or representing gratitude from a Christian perspective. I think that's a mistake. And it turned out to be, apparently, because some of the things they said, like, nothing deserves our gratitude more than our first responders. Well, there's a lot of things that deserve our gratitude more than the first responders, I think, even a cultural setting, and certainly in a spiritual setting, in the biggest picture, as you pointed out. So, so what do you do there? Well, if you, if, you, if you invite local politicians and you don't, and, they're, and they're, they don't know the Lord, I don't know about these, and they're, they're doing a political thing, which that's kind of the point of having a local politician, then, you know, you're not, you, you can't control what you end up with. All right. So um, you get what you get. And that didn't turn out very well. Cringeworthy is the way you characterize it. Um, Now, the question is, what do you guys do about it? And the answer I would give is that um, sometimes you just let it ride. Are we still recording? Yes, we are. Okay. Something weird happened, and my face went away from the screen, but we're still on. Yeah, sometimes you just let it ride. I've talked before about mistakes are—you know, friends are still friends, and pastors are still pastors, and good people are still good people, and mistakes are still mistakes. Uh, Everybody makes mistakes. I don't know what the pastoral staff thought about how this all played out after it was all over. Maybe they were thinking, oh, that was cringeworthy, too. That was bad. Bad idea, bad execution. That did not turn out the way we expected it to turn out. Making a, f- a fuss about it at this point, I think, would be a mistake. I think it's better just to let things go. Now, I'm presuming that this was an exceptional circumstance. I'm presuming that normally things are pretty good at your church, which is why you go to your church. Normally, Christ is honored in the services that Scripture is taught, you share the Lord's Supper, you have communion with each other, gathering together and talking and carrying on, you maybe have food afterwards, or you have sweet fellowship and afterglow and all that stuff. And that's the way it ought to be, characteristically. 
And if that's the way it is, I wouldn't worry about it. But if you start seeing more forays into this kind of thing, more specialized events where the important time in Scripture or training for the Christians is being compromised by other things that now that don't seem to be justified. Something like this may be on occasion, but but characteristically or more than once in a long while, now that begins to be a problem. And then the question is, what is actually going on here? What's the leadership thinking? What are they doing? What are they trying to accomplish with this? And uh, I've noticed this happen with seeker, so-called seeker-sensitive churches who started out being sensitive to the fact that seekers and newcomers were there, and so you give them a place to sit, and you watch their kids, and you give them a place to park, and you try to use language they'll understand, so you're sensitive to them, but you're not compromising your message. And then they become seeker-centered, and then they're all about evangelism, and then they're, they're evangelistic organizations, not churches that are meant to train up the body of Christ in the way they should go. And then the third stage is they become consumer uh, enterprises. In other words, they're just trying to give people what they want. Um, that's a bad direction to go. Now, I don't know from one occasion of having a dedication of a service to first responders that signaling you're going in a bad direction. If it's just one event, I just let it go and cringe and shrug it off and say, sorry, Lord, but keep an eye on how things follow through. And uh, if more things like this happen, then I think there's cause to be concerned. All right. Hope that helps, Amber. Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason. Gotta go. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.